All right, we're going to get started with our Life in the Law segment today. We're going to be talking about presidential ethics with Professor Lawrence Lessig. Yes, Professor Lawrence Lessig is an academic, attorney, and political activist. He is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School and the former director of Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Prior to his appointment at Harvard, he was a professor of law at Stanford Law School, where he founded the Center for Internet and Society and at the University of Chicago. He is a former board member of the Free Software Foundation and Software Freedom Law Center, the Washington, D.C. Lobbying Group's Public Knowledge and Free Press, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Really glad to be here. So excited. I'm so excited about this because before I got to law school, uh, Harvard actually sent me a book to mm-hmm. start my book collection. I, I signed it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I was interested in government and politics and it was Republic Lost. And they said, this is to start your legal book collection. So it was actually my first summer read and I read wow. it during my summer job. And I was like, I have to meet this guy. And this is actually the first time I'm meeting you now that I'm graduating. And your like, last chance. <laughs> You're gone in two days. My last chance. I. That's why we reached out to your assistant we were like who should we bring in for petty politics and we talked about it for a bit and we we're like Lawrence Lessig Professor Lessig of course absolutely <laughs> so we start off most of our interviews with a very simple question what brought you to attend law school what what were some of the initial motivations that you had to go to law school and do you feel like you were ultimately able to obtain those goals yeah so I had been doing philosophy before I came to law uh, and I was in Cambridge doing a graduate degree in philosophy kind of thought I would be a philosophy professor mm-hmm. Um, but then became convinced there was no such thing as philosophy mm. or It sounds like a philosophical answer, answer yeah. right? <laughs> this is like Wittgenstein taught us yeah. this. And, and I was much more eager to do something that had a more practical punch to it. Um, so that's what brought me back to law. And, uh, I, you know, my friends tell me I said that I wanted to be an academic from the very beginning. I don't really remember that. What I remember is recognizing that I had no discipline to work on problems I didn't find interesting. So I couldn't really expect to be a successful lawyer Mm -hmm. um, because, unfortunately, lawyers sometimes have to work on projects they don't find interesting. Mm I kind of thought the same thing once I started taking philosophy courses, and I was taking them because a professor told me that they would better prepare me for law school for some reason. I guess the reading, and I don't know, so it's interesting. (laughs) There's just no such thing. So when you initially went to Yale, did you know that you'd use your legal degree more to advocate as opposed to the traditional practice of law? Well, I mean, I never thought I would advocate. I, I really always thought I would just be an academic, meaning mm-hmm. I would, you know, be writing books or writing articles. Like your um, friends told you. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I never thought of, you know, being a legal academic as being anything other than, you know, writing things nobody read. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, getting to write what you found interesting. So that was really what I thought I would do. So what was your primary influence of your choice to not take the traditional big law route, which is very attainable when you're going to Yale Law School? It's like at your feet. You know, I think the, I think it really was just recognizing I wanted freedom mm-hmm. more than I wanted um, money. Okay. Uh, and, you know, that freedom is the most important thing, both, I think, privately and publicly that a law professor has. I mean, privately, because, you know, the value of being able to just say what you believe and work on what you want to work on mm-hmm. is really rare in this society, unless you're a billionaire, right? So, you, you know, most people are constrained in a way that the academy l- lets people be free. But it's also value publicly because, you know, we need some people in society who are not beholden to commercial or financial interests 
to say what's right. Now, I'm not saying just because I'm a law professor, I know what's right. And obviously, there are different views among law professors about what's right and what's wrong. But the public discourse needs a perspective that can afford to just try to figure out what's right and be free to say it without fear that you'll be fired because somebody disagrees with what you say. So is it safe to say that because of economic interest and because of the incentives at the big law firms and in the traditional legal careers, you're not necessarily given freedom to have that discourse? Yeah, and I think it's getting worse. You know, I was when I was at Stanford, a friend of mine who I had clerked with asked me to become of counsel at his firm. He was a partner at the mm-hmm. firm. And I said to him, you know, uh, Jeff, your, your clients hate me. And he said, no, no, that's not going to be a problem. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, so they hired me. The first week I was there, I got a call from the managing partner, and we have a big meeting. And the managing partner says, our number one client has said, basically, it's us or Lessig. Oh, my God. Oh, my so God. I, said, I can only imagine how it would feel to be in that kind of meeting. <laughs> oh, my so God. So I said to him, you know, I told you. And he said, no, 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 it's no problem. We can work this out. He says, you know, they're just worried, you know, when you write your pieces in Wired magazine or in Newsweek, um, they're okay if you write what you write, wow. like for the Stanford Law Review. Do you think you could, you know, constrain yourself to wow. the Stanford Law Review? I never considered that because after law school, I am going into big law, and I never thought about how my political affiliation or the things that I'm producing now in terms of activism would affect my big law career. Well, I didn't think about it either. And then when I said to him, no, there's no way I could agree to something like that, no. he said, you know, there's an ethical obligation here. And I said, what? Yeah, what did? No, I said, think it's illegal. <laughs> he said to me, um, you have an ethical obligation to advance the business interests of our clients. Mm. And I said, actually, my ethical obligation is to myself. Mm-hmm. And so this relationship is finished. But the point is, you know, I could afford to do that because I had a real job and I could go back to my real job and it didn't change my opportunity to pay for my kid's school or something like that. And uh-huh. most people in the law are not in that position. They don't have that freedom. So how do you leverage your role as a Harvard Law professor to promote critical public dialogue? Do you think that you would have similar influence in any other position? Well, I certainly wouldn't have similar freedom. Okay, Um, and that's the key here. That's the key. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if I have influence. I mean, I am able to say what I believe, and I can write what I believe, and people Mm -hmm. can buy my books and talk about it. But, you know, I'm not in a government position. I'm not, you know, running for a major office. And so in that sense, you know, the structure limits me in a certain way. But, again, my my focus was just the freedom to do what I believe I should be doing, and, and I think I have that now. So, Professor Lessig, in 2016, you ran for president against Donald Trump and, of course, against everyone else. (laughs) That's the uh, T here. So, we want to talk more about that. What was the primary factor that influenced your decision to run for president in 2016? Well, you know, I thought then, as I think now, Mm -hmm. that the number one problem with our representative democracy is that it is not representative. Uh, It's not representative for a whole bunch of reasons. The one that I focused on primarily, but it's not the only one, is the way we fund campaigns. You know, members of Congress spend 30 to 70 percent of their time Mm -hmm. raising money from 100,000 Americans. Mm -hmm. Those 100,000 Americans have enormous power in this political system. These members of Congress learn to suck up to those people, to bend, shapeshift into the form they need to make those people happy. And then the rest of us, you know, are kind of second class. It's like an afterthought. 
Yeah, Hi. you did say that in your book. You said that anyone basically can be representative of the democracy if they're willing to genuflect amongst America's wealthiest, but also circumvent political finance laws. Yeah. So, so that dimension of inequality mm-hmm. is the one I think we're all, you know, you know, deeply aware of. But there's so many others. I mean, when in my political campaign, the first issue I talked about is an equal freedom to vote, you know, Mm -hmm. because of this ridiculous system of voter ID laws or felon disenfranchisement. We have a democracy where we systematically suppress the opportunity of citizens to participate in this democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the the first place I went after I announced my campaign was Ferguson, to stand in Ferguson and to say, look, the inequality that is the system here is just a microcosm of the inequality of this system generally. And the fight that happens here is the fight we've got to spread everywhere and getting people to recognize how the simplest promise of a representative democracy that we are equal citizens is denied by this democracy. So my view in that, in that race was this has got to be the center of the fight. And I was actually working with Bernie Sanders early in the campaign um, to try to make him make this central to the fight. Mm-hmm. And he was not interested in making this central to the fight. I mean, he was interested in talking about money and politics, but mainly for the purpose of beating up on Hillary Clinton. Um, Mm. So when it was clear to me that there was going to be no candidate who was going to make this issue central, I thought, you know, I was going to have a shot to get into the debates at least. And if I was in the debates, I at least could take every issue and show how that issue ultimately is affected by this more fundamental inequality. So you're going to talk about single-payer health care? It's just not reality to talk about single-payer health care in a world where doctors and pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies fund political campaigns. Mm-hmm. There's just no chance that they're ever going to do the right There's thing no in that world. And you take that issue and every other issue. We've got to recognize this issue is fundamental and if we don't address this issue, there's no reason for us to be playing this other kind of game. So that's what I wanted to do. And you know, when I finally qualified according to the rules of the debate, for being in the debate, they changed the rules of the debate mm. so that I wasn't in the debate. So that dynamic was the most depressing lesson about the Democratic Party. And that was your primary influence to just withdraw your candidacy when they changed the rules of the debate. Yeah, I had no, you know, if I wasn't going to be in the debate, there was no reason to ask people to give me money to stay, to continue my campaign. Mm-hmm. I, at that point, it's just a vanity uh, 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 ticket. Um, and um, it was already, you know, we'd already raised an extraordinary amount of money in a short period of time, like more than a million dollars in six weeks. But when it was clear this could not do what we, at the minimum we thought we should do, which is to get into the debates, then um, we stepped away from it. So from my understanding, it's your belief that economic inequality and these economic incentives are ruining right now the American democratic process. Do you think that racism also play a part in that? Or can you separate the two as just using economic inequality as the basis for the unequal foundation? I think the basis is political inequality. Mm -hmm. And of course, African Americans have been fighting for political inequality for 400 years. Um, You know, first the fight for freedom, which uh, to some extent succeeds putting aside lynching in uh, 18... 65. Um, And then eventually, by the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, for political equality, at least formally, that has been the fight of African Americans, I think, the most inspirational and tragic fight in American political history. And what I think we have to do as Americans generally is to learn the lesson of that fight 
and to extend it across every social and economic uh, frontier to recognize that all of us are politically unequal, except for that tiny fraction of the elite who have enormous power in this political system. And I think the dignity of the fight for civil rights, of the you know, people who risk their lives to achieve the equal freedom to vote in America, mm-hmm. is the ideal that we need to spread more broadly. And, and so I don't think they're separate. I think they're deeply united. And, you know, and as Dr. King was saying at the end of his life, the least popular things that he said, you know, next to the Vietnam War things, um, was to recognize the way that the racial inequality mm-hmm. was just part of a more general economic inequality yeah. in America. And that's totally true. He wasn't he didn't die when he was boycotting racism and why he died when he was boycotting the labor strike. And so that's something that's interesting to think about when we think about how inextricable it is when we talk about political strengths and political incentives or power and how that ties in with capitalism and economic oppression and whatnot. I want to start talking a little bit more about the Trump administration, but before we segue into that, I was really curious about your take on some of the new developments we're seeing in the ways that we actually push out the vote. We have state legislatures that are passing new legislation that would ultimately give the electoral vote for that state based on the popular vote in that state. Um, and, and people are kind of thinking that we're slowly but surely moving towards the national popular vote. Do you think that that actually empowers more people and gives more access to the franchise? Or is it complicating that in a, in a different way? Yeah. So I think you misspoke one word in mm. what you just said. Uh, what states are increasingly doing, Connecticut was the most recent, mm-hmm. is passing uh, laws that said that um, they join a compact. And the compact says that when 270 electoral votes are represented, those states promise to pledge their electors to the winner of the national popular vote. Ah, So I that see. that would guarantee that the winner of the national popular vote is, 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 is elected president. Um, I see. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a strong supporter of that. Um, and in addition to supporting that, we've started litigation in four states mm-hmm. challenging the winner-take-all system, which all but two states adopt for allocating their electors. So, you know, for example, Massachusetts says that the winner of the popular vote mm-hmm. gets every single elector in the state, regardless right. of whether, you know, they win the popular vote by one vote or win the popular vote by 80%. I see. Um, and so we think that violates the principle of one person, one vote. Um, but, you know, the argument is not so much about the legal principles. That's ultimately how we win. Mm-hmm. The real argument is about the political consequences of winner-take-all. So because of the winner-take-all system, presidential elections happen in 14 states. 14 states in 2016 got 99% of the campaign spending. That's mm-hmm. not you know, an exaggerated number. That is the literal statistic, 99% in 14 states. And that means those 14 states, which turn out to be whiter, older, focused on 20th century industry, mm-hmm. um, are the people who pick our president. And right. the president focuses his or her message on attracting those people. Now, what the hell? Right. What about the other 36 states in the United States? Why aren't they part of the calculation mm-hmm. that a campaign makes about how we're going to get elected to be president? Um, and I think that this is a deep distortion in the process for selecting our president that has produced presidents that bend over backwards to make these battleground states happy, but couldn't give, uh, you know, a dime's worth of uh, attention to uh, states that are not battleground states. So, you know, when the Trump administration announced the end to the offshore billing, uh, drilling ban, um, Florida had a waiver within 24 hours 
California can't even get a hearing. Mm-hmm. And the reason is California is not a battleground state, but Florida, you know, is one of the most important battleground states. You don't get to be a Republican president if you haven't won Florida. So, you know, I think this distortion is deeply, deeply destructive of a representative democracy. And the thing people miss is that this is not in the Constitution. The mm. Constitution creates the Electoral College, but it doesn't say anything about how the states allocate their Electoral College votes. I see. This is totally a choice of the states, and there's no reason the states should be allowed to make a choice that defeats the objective of the uh, representative democracy. I feel like that is one great way for us to kind of reel in the influence of money in politics is by first and foremost recognizing that, yes, you do need to engage with voters in these states that may or may not be guaranteed for you or for your opponent, right? You want to make sure that you have to engage because otherwise you're, you are in many ways focusing this election specifically on only a handful of states. Um, and it's something for me at the 2016 election, after we were you know, finally done with all of the votes, I finally realized and recognized along with many other people that electors are, are people, that there is a conference where people individually use the votes of that state to then cast their own vote for who should be president. And that's something that I feel like speaks to a larger conflict and lack of civic education within our, our our schooling, right? I never knew that they were actual electors that went on to take our votes and speak on these issues. Yeah. And so, you know, we right now are litigating in two states, Washington State and Colorado, about what freedom those electors constitutionally have. Mm-hmm. Washington State, for the first time in American history, fined three electors wow, because they uh-huh. voted against uh, their pledge. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Colorado, the secretary of state kicked one elector off and then threatened two others if they didn't vote according to their pledge. Now, our oh. view is constitutionally, electors are free to vote their conscience, which mm-hmm. is another reason this system is just batshit. Am I allowed to say that word? Nope, by just, all means. <laughs> um, it's just crazy that this is how we select our president. But I think it's constitutionally compelled that these electors are free to vote their conscience. They can be asked to make a pledge, sure, mm-hmm. just like uh, an appointee to the Supreme Court can be asked to make a pledge about whether he or she is going to vote to overturn Roe. Mm-hmm. But the idea that if he or she doesn't vote according to the pledge, you can fine her right. or kick her off is just crazy. And so I think we will actually prevail on that claim, which will then lead people to say, wait a minute. Maybe we should be thinking more carefully about this system we have for electing our president because it's kind of crazy that in the end, the decision is going to be made by a handful of people called electors who decide, oh, you know, I actually don't think the person I was pledged to is the person who ought to be president. I think this lawsuit will definitely start and help to uncover some of these ethical issues that we see within voting and also in governance. I mean, I wanted to talk with you about some of your opinions on the Trump administration and recent developments around not only the Mueller investigation and any influence that Russia may have had on our elections, but also some of the tangential investigations that have recently come about through the Mueller investigation. Case in point is the uh, Southern District of New York investigation (laughs) 
of Michael Cohen, who is the uh, personal attorney and quote unquote fixer for President Donald Trump. We've seen that the FBI and also a New York field office of the FBI have obtained records from Michael Cohen's hotel, personal home and office. And there's currently a legal debate over which of those documents can be accessed and used as evidence. In that process, the judge from the Southern District of New York has appointed a special master, which is a, a unique form of uh, you know responsibility to go over those documents and make a report and recommendation to the judge as to what should and should not be allowed and brought into evidence before the court. You have actually been able to be a special master um, back in 1997 for a case that involved Microsoft, I'm, I, I believe. And, and so it would be interesting for you to kind of explain the role of a special master as you see it and as you have been employed in that role. And what are some of the ethical considerations that one must have in you know, seeking or being appointed to that role and then carrying out that role? Yeah, it's actually um, a complicated question. So I was appointed to be a special master in a Microsoft case, and Microsoft immediately challenged that appointment. Mm -hmm. And they challenged it both on the grounds that it wasn't appropriate that the kind of decisions I was being asked to make be made by a special master as opposed to a judge. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they said I was biased. You know, I used a, I used a Macintosh computer. Um, <laughs> um, so uh -huh. they, when they got to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals threw, you know, didn't spend a second thinking about the bias claim, but they did say, you know, it is important that a judge make the judge's decision and you only use a special master for relatively ministerial tasks, tasks that don't require a deep kind of judgment. I think that's the kind of task that the special master in the Michael Cohen case is being asked to make mm -hmm. uh, or engage in. Because, you know, essentially all that uh, special master is supposed to be doing is looking at evidence and deciding which of the evidence is appropriate for the Mueller investigation to see and which of it is just not relevant to, to the Mueller investigation and to mm -hmm. kind of provide an initial filtering to assure that... Um, uh, the Mueller investigation can't just go on a fishing expedition and find whatever they want and use it against the president. So this investigation into Michael Cohen is also part and parcel of a larger conversation that we're now having about pay to play within the government. So we are seeing news that Michael Cohen had been at some point paid by AT&T to help them in determining their best legal strategy for their potential merger with Time Warner. That and other kind of instances are showing that people who might have the ear of the president or have the ear of, of people in high office are able to receive money and then go and create some type of, um, of, of, of influence on the people who will ultimately make these decisions. How do you think that pay to play is being addressed? Um, has it been brought out into the, into the light in a way that is you know, going to actually lead to change? Or is it something that, that may or may not actually be solved in the near future? Well, you know, I once saw a video of um, somebody stealing an ATM. Hmm. Uh, and basically, you know, they backed up a truck that had a crane and they picked up the ATM and put it in the truck and drove away. Okay. And the commentator came on and he said, you know, ATMs have a lot of security in them, but nobody ever thought yeah. about the <laughs> idea of a crane it. picking it up and just <laughs> driving away with it. And I kind of feel like that's what's happening with ethics regulation in uh -huh. the context of this administration. You know, the, the law is 
filled, chock filled with all sorts of conflict of interest rules that govern like what a lobbyist can say or do or where he can take money and what he needs to disclose. And nobody ever imagined mm. <laughs> that somebody would just walk in and drop a half a million dollars down on the desk of the personal lawyer of the president who's in constant contact with the president right. about everything, including which porn stars to pay off. <laughs> and then um, and then somehow this is invisible to the ethical regulatory system. Right. But, um, you know, I think that's just a measure of uh, the planet that these people are living on. You know, it's just it, th these people come from a completely different ethical universe. And there's nothing that constrains them. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at the way Trump trades, um, you know, his uh, Mar-a-Lago estate right. for mm -hmm. money from the government. The mm -hmm. amount of money we've spent to make it possible for him to go to his, quote, winter White House, right. um, you know, is extraordinary. Or the amount of money that gets spent on Trump hotels by foreign dignitaries mm -hmm. who are trying to signal their, their affection for the president by giving his hotels money. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a person who sees no limits at all in trading his public position for personal gain. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't think anybody would have imagined that a company like AT&T um, would have crossed the line the way they crossed it here. And they've even now come out and said it was a terrible a bad mistake. Idea. Mm -hmm. Not a bad idea, a terrible mistake. It was a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and it was. Uh, I, but, you know, I'm not surprised given everything else we've seen about this president. And, and I also am concerned that people think this is a good thing, right? Because at least within the, the pundit world, right, people are arguing and spinning these different choices that Trump and also Cohen have made. But even recently, we're seeing that there are new poll numbers that are showing that people, at least um, on the conservative end of the spectrum, are starting to buy some of these arguments about Trump shaking up the White House, shaking up Capitol Hill, perhaps maybe even successfully draining the swamp. Do you think there is a shift in our moral and ethical compass currently happening right now that will be irreparable? How can we actually begin to make the right arguments that will actually convince people to, to take the steps in the right direction? Well, look, there's a psychological dynamic, which is well studied. It's not yet well understood, where we can take any fact presented to us and spin it in our own heads mm -hmm. to make it fit our own political view of the world. So, you know, if you're a liberal out there um, I can tell you all sorts of things about uh, GMOs. I can tell you all sorts of facts about GMOs. And you will spin it to convince yourself that GMOs are just terrible. Because we liberals think GMOs are terrible. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're a conservative, I can tell you all sorts of facts about global warming. And you'll spin it to convince yourself that global warming is not real. <laughs> and if you're super smart, you'll be better at spinning than if you're not super smart. So, right. so you know, many people think, you know, especially of conservatives, they say, oh, they're idiots because they don't know about global warming. Actually, it's the smart conservatives who've convinced themselves there's nothing in the yeah. global warming story because they're good at doing that. That's what being smart is all about. Now, you take that social fact and then you add on top of it the increasingly polarized media. And what that means is we've built a machine for evolving separate universes of understandings of the world. Mm -hmm, so right. in some sense, I'm not surprised that you know, people are looking at the Trump administration from the right and finding ways to sort of convince themselves that this man's actually succeeding on any dimension. I'm not surprised because, you know, there's a big commercial return from Fox succeeding at convincing their base that their president is a great president. But I think that if you take any of these people and just shake them away from their television and, and say to them, um, hey, wait a minute, uh, 
if Hillary Clinton did one tenth of this, what would you be saying? Oh, right, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think at a certain point they can realize there's just something crazy in the way that they're acting. But obviously it doesn't manifest itself on Fox News. <laughs> So what advice can you give to prospective law students who are applying with hopes of tackling these complicated legal and political questions? Well, I think the biggest advice is don't ever sell out. Sell out. Sell mm. out. Because that is a really corrosive reality. What does it mean in your eyes to sell out? Well, I think at every moment, mm -hmm. you need to decide, is what I'm doing right? Mm -hmm. Is it what I believe in? Um, that doesn't mean, you know, I don't think it's selling out if you work for Exxon on a case, you know, defending themselves against something. I, you know, I think lawyers are about representing people and you're going to represent both sides in a yeah. fight. So that's not selling out. But selling out is not living up to the ethical standards you know are supposed to constrain you as a lawyer or engaging in behavior because it benefits the business interests of your clients rather than um, the truth of the law. And, and my point is, you've got to recognize that you will be asked to sell out in small ways mm. on the path to selling out in big ways. Ah. Nobody ever comes in and you know, offers you $50,000 to sell your soul. They offer you $5, not to sell your soul, but just to steer a little bit to the left. And then they offer you 10 and then 20 and 100 Never in dollars, but again, in building relationships of Networking, all that, yeah. Yeah. And so you just need to constantly say to yourself, is this who I want my children to see me as? Mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's the greatest thing about kids. I mean, you know, I have three and I love them, but mm -hmm. the thing that they do in my life all the time is I am constantly imagining, especially my daughter sitting there looking at me and saying, how could you do that? Mm -hmm. and, and when I can think to myself, I could explain what I'm doing to her, then I'm okay with it. Uh, and that's the test. If it's your mom or your dad or your kids, whatever it is, it's somebody you love and respect. Mm -hmm. And that person needs to be okay with what you're doing so that you can be okay with what you're doing. And this is the line that it's so hard to draw because the law is going to become increasingly competitive. It's going to be increasingly difficult for mm -hmm. them to, to give the high salaries that they want to give. And the only way they do that is by shaving at the margins. That's the thing you need to find a way to resist. Well, I definitely think that you're setting a great example for your children. You're also setting a great example for little Evie, who is also in the studio with us right now. Um, I'm sure she'll listen back to this um, and, and keep that in mind for when she's applying for her law school uh, of her dreams. Evelyn wants to be Beyonce. Well, she can also be that, and this will be helpful for that as well. <laughs> Professor Lessig, we really appreciate you taking time to speak with us today um, and helping us to understand more how ethics operate, not only in the legal profession, but also in politics and in governance. And we're hoping, we're hoping. I, I agree with what Evie's saying. <laughs> we really, we really hope that these lessons that you're providing will actually be Take taken into right, like taken into mm -hmm. consideration yeah. and mobilized and utilized. Yeah. Embrace them. I, I, embrace I can them. only Absolutely. imagine if multitudes of people mobilized on the basis of knowing that they needed to dismantle the current economic incentives and structure of our democracy. How would that look for long-term presidents and even representatives? And yeah. it's just, I think it'll be a totally different ballgame in terms of political power, economic power, and whatnot, even the ability to access such. 
Let's do it. So let us know if there's any, um, is there any social media that you'd like to plug? Are there any upcoming projects um, that we could let our listeners know about? Yeah, so I work in a group called Equal Citizens. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm equalcitizens.us. And we have a bunch of litigation and activism we're doing there. And you can follow me on Twitter at Lessig. Excellent. Oh, you oh, got all oh, right. Wait, well, you have a Twitter. I'm right, yeah. right. And you got one of the Twitter like handles that's just like like a yeah. short, sweet to the point. But Lessig is also it. not particularly a, a no. challenging one to get. I, I've, I've been trying to get Cameron Clark, and it's <gasps> just so have hard. You? I got Cameron D. Clark, so it's okay. I it's fine. That one is not so up to basic. date yet. My no mom one actually intentionally gave me a common name because she didn't want anyone to mess it up when they said it. But they all still do. So she named me Brianna, but everyone calls me Brianna. Yeah. So, My mom it, said the same thing. She said she wanted me to have an, uh, like, that was partially a decision yeah, of me having an American name. Yeah, because Michael, and she said no one could do it. Everyone messed it up. Uh. She named all her kids Brianna, Ashley, Kayla, Lauren. She literally looked at the most common <laughs> names in the U.S. That's what she did. It was crazy. I'm so upset. Well, we appreciate you again coming to speak with us. Uh, best of luck with your upcoming research and projects. And we're excited to know that you will still be here at Harvard Law School for upcoming generations to learn from you and to engage with you. Uh, Evie, I'm waiting for you. <laughs> Thank you. All right.